Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. Episode 45 of the Big Show, and we've got a packed one today. Former All-Pro Buffalo Bills linebacker Lorenzo Alexander getting all set to join the show. And speaking of the Buffalo Bills, we're all over last night's Monday night game. Plus, we'll get into the NBA season tipping off. And of course, the MLB playoffs in full swing down to four teams. The Boston Red Sox bats look hot. But... Let's start in Nashville, Monday Night Football. The Buffalo Bills going in with all the confidence in the world. Winners of four straight following that disastrous opening week loss to the stagnant Pittsburgh Steelers. The Bills going in thinking that they're playing essentially a home game. Bills Mafia on flights to Nashville nonstop seemingly for the past four or five days. And the Bills show up and they look flat. And I know that that's a big statement For a team that just put up 31 points, for a team that has one of the most dynamic offenses in football, and still, despite giving up 34 points in that contest, still the best-ranked defense in football. I know it's a big statement to lose a game 34-31, and for me to sit here and see that the Buffalo Bills looked flat, but Tennessee looked like they just had a little more juice than Buffalo from the opening snap, and the Bills led... In this one, you know, the Bills led, what, 31-24 going into the fourth quarter. The Titans scored 10 unanswered. But something about Tennessee just seemed way more energized than Buffalo, way more engaged than Buffalo. It felt like it was always the Titans game to win and the Bills to lose. And that's ultimately what happened. You know, Buffalo had the golden opportunity, fourth and inches, Tennessee's five inside a minute to go. It's exactly the position you want to be in. And I'm not going to sit here and question or criticize Sean McDermott's call to go for it. Could he have kicked a chip shop 23-yard field goal and sent this thing to overtime with his MVP candidate quarterback, Josh Allen? Absolutely. Would that have been easier? Maybe. Did Sean McDermott make the right call in going for it? I say absolutely, and here's why. Josh Allen, prior to that play, on fourth down rushing attempts in his career was successful 13 out of 14 times. That's a 93% success rate. Now look, I know football is not quite like baseball in terms of analytics and letting the nerds in the front office call the shots, but anything in any sport that's successful 93% of the time, it's really hard to argue against that and so absolutely right call there when you're dealing with what less than 18 inches to go give the ball to Josh Allen I mean the guy's built like a bulldozer not quite Derrick Henry but pretty damn close for a quarterback all you need is him to go right up his center's ass get the first down I like my chances there now a couple unforeseen things happened on that play first off Jeffrey Simmons the D tackle former first round pick of the Tennessee Titans a couple years ago. He showed every reason why on that one play, Tennessee used a first round pick on a guy who had a torn ACL and was going to miss most of his rookie season. Jeffrey Simmons really showing why the Titans drafted him despite some injury concerns, despite even some off the field concerns back when he was coming out of Mississippi State, really earned his paycheck, every dollar of it with that play. Now the other, the maybe more unforeseen event that occurred on that play Josh Allen just flat out slipping as soon as he gets the snap now he gets the snap takes a step backwards which some quarterbacks do to kind of you know scope the field see which hole to shoot through I hate that personally I say you get the snap you go right up your quarterback's ass like Tom Brady it's why Tom Brady despite being a lot smaller than Josh Allen despite being nowhere near as strong and big and fast as Josh Allen it's why Tom Brady's one of the best quarterback sneak artists of all time I say you take that snap, you go right up your center's ass. Allen takes a step back, 
to scope the field, give Simmons extra time to push Deion Dawkins, who, by the way, that's a big boy. Deion Dawkins, I mean, he's a stud in his own right. Jeffrey Simmons made him look like a peewee football player. Gives him extra time to push back against the Bills' offensive line. And then Allen, while he's scoping the field, just slips and falls flat on his face. So look, was I disappointed in the outcome? Absolutely. You know, I wanted Buffalo to win that game. I absolutely love the Buffalo Bills. My Giants aren't worth a dime. The Giants aren't worth the price of admission. So when you have a team like Buffalo at your disposal, who you can watch most weeks because they're still, you know, they're held technically the only New York team. They're close enough. You get most of their games. They're getting primetime action. They are the most fun team in football to watch. Now, you can argue Baltimore, of course. You can argue Arizona. But in my opinion, the Buffalo Bills on both sides of the ball are as fun as any team in football to watch over the past two seasons. So I was rooting for them. I wanted them to go into Nashville to come out victorious, but you have to credit the Tennessee Titans. I mean, this is a team that started the year with an awful blowout loss to the Arizona Cardinals. Now look at the Cardinals now. Of course, they're 6-0. and They're the best team in football, the only unbeaten team in football a third of the way through the season. So you really can't crush Tennessee for that. Maybe their offense a little bit, but the Cardinals are legit, right? They just went to Cleveland, no head coach. Without their best defensive player, Chandler Jones, they embarrassed Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns. The Cardinals are absolutely legit. But go figure this Tennessee Titans team. They only put up 13 points in that opening week contest. Since then, they've exceeded 30 points in three of five games. But one of the two games that they didn't exceed 30, the Jets. The Tennessee Titans, they beat Buffalo in primetime, but they lost to the Jets. I, I mean, if you would have told me at this point the Titans would be 4-2, and two, it wouldn't shock me. I mean, maybe preseason I wouldn't have guessed which games they lost. I would have said definitely Buffalo. And then as, as for the other loss, maybe at Seattle, a game that they should have lost down 24-9 and that one made an incredible comeback. But for Tennessee to come here and beat the Bills in primetime Monday Night Football and have a loss to the Jets on their resume... It's why you gotta love football. I mean, the amount of parity in the National Football League is what makes it, in my opinion, by far the best professional sport out there. Like, this doesn't happen in the NBA. And I'll get to the NBA. I know it's opening night. The Lakers, the Warriors, the Nets, the Bucks. It's gonna be a fun season. There's no doubt about it. Last year was my favorite NBA season of my lifetime because there was parity, right? Because the Jazz and the Suns and the Bucks were the top of the top of the league. You know, the Atlanta Hawks coming out and making quick work of the Knicks and then upsetting Philly in the playoffs, right? The NBA was spectacular last year, but a team like the Jets beating a team like the Titans, stuff like that doesn't happen in other professional sports. Only football. And I know the Titans were without AJ Brown. I know that they were without Julio Jones. So essentially, who the hell's Ryan Tannehill throwing to in that game? It doesn't matter. It's the Jets. You know, Derrick Henry has shown he can single-handedly beat teams. And Henry had a really good game against the Jets, but last night, Derrick Henry was otherworldly. Derrick Henry last night entered the MVP discussion. Now, you can say, you know, maybe there should be an asterisk next to it if he does eclipse Eric Dickerson's single-season rushing record of 2,105 yards because now it's a 17-game schedule Okay, if you want an asterisk there because a whole slew of new records are going to be set, I can live with that. But at the end of the day, it's still impressive as hell and there's still a really realistic chance that Derrick Henry, this season, could be the NFL's all-time single-season leading rusher. I I mean, right now he's on pace for 2,091 yards. That would be 14 yards shy of Eric Dickerson's record. It would also be third all-time behind Dickerson and then behind Adrian Peterson, who ran for 2097, I believe in 2012, with the Minnesota Vikings. You can't scoff at that, even with an extra game. I mean, for any running back, 16 games, 17 games, it doesn't matter to eclipse 2,000 yards on the season would be phenomenal. Derrick Henry did it a year ago in a 16-game slate. He could do it again This time, maybe set the record in a 17-game slate. And I know it's a quarterback's award, but he would have to receive 
some MVP recognition if he does so. I mean, I know right now we're talking about Josh Allen, still in it. This loss does not impact him at all. We're talking about Lamar Jackson, who, by the way, I cannot wait to see how he comes out against the Bengals. I love this Bengals team. I'm all over Cincinnati being a playoff team. I think the Bengals are going to get one of the wild card spots in the AFC, but Logan Wilson, Logan Wilson, what are you doing? Calling Lamar Jackson a running back? Have you not learned? Have you not learned from everyone else who has made the same mistake before you? Lamar Jackson is having the best passing season of his career. And guess what? He can still run the ball better than any other quarterback in the National Football League. I don't know what kind of beast Logan Wilson just unleashed for Sunday's upcoming matchup with Baltimore, but I would not want to be a Cincinnati Bengal this Sunday. So look, you've got Josh Allen, you've got Lamar Jackson, you've got Kyler Murray. I mean, if the Cardinals keep this up, how the hell do you not include Kyler Murray in the MVP discussion? How do you not name him the front runner if the Arizona Cardinals keep up this 6-0 pace to start the season? Guys like Justin Herbert are going to hang around. I mean, I don't want to dismiss him because of one really bad game where Baltimore eviscerated the Chargers. Patrick Mahomes, not the year for him, but he'll hang around. I'm sorry, you got to add Derrick Henry to the list. I know I just named five quarterbacks who very well could finish top five in voting, but absolutely should not. Derrick Henry, if he gets this Tennessee Titans team, not to the playoffs, right? Because the AFC South is a joke, worst division in football. But if Derrick Henry gets them to a position where instead of squeaking into the playoffs at 9-8 and eight, like they easily could have when they were losing to the Jets a few weeks ago, if Henry gets them to a position where they're an 11-win team, maybe even a 12-win team, and all of a sudden they've got a good seed, a favorable matchup in the postseason as opposed to you know just being the four seed and playing the best wildcard team, probably losing in that first matchup, that's on Derrick Henry more than anyone else, right? The Titans don't have a defense. I know Simmons made that incredible play. They lost the rookie Caleb Farley to a torn ACL last night. Lost, by the way, Taylor Lewan, their best offensive lineman, carded off the field. I mean, it makes that win just that much more impressive for Tennessee. They lose a key player on each side of the ball. A.J. Brown's playing with food poisoning. And they still take down the Buffalo Bills. And it's all because of Derrick Henry. I mean, he's already had multiple three-touchdown rushing games this season. No other running back has one game with three rushing touchdowns. He has to be in the MVP discussion right there with Josh Allen. And as far as Josh Allen and the Bills are concerned, I am not by any means looking at this game and waving any red flags. I am not concerned at all with the Buffalo Bills. I'm not concerned with Sean McDermott. I thought the play call there was... 1,000% correct. It just wasn't executed. I'm not concerned with Brian Dayball, who, by the way, lost his grandma, who raised him in West Seneca, New York, in the shadow of Orchard Park, lost her three weeks ago, and then finds out on the team flight down to Nashville that her husband, his grandpa, who also raised him, passed away as well. So Brian Dayball loses, in his words, the two most important people in his life. The two people who raised him. Loses them both within a span of three weeks. Doesn't miss a game. And, by the way, for every aspect that the Bills' defense came up short last night, their offense, Brian Dayball, coached a hell of a game. I mean, that two-point conversion, Allen to McKenzie to Knox back to Allen, that was... I just wish it wasn't a two-point conversion. I wish they brought that out in the playoffs this year. That was a fun, amazing play. That's what the Bills are, right? They're a fun, incredible team. And I'm not writing them off because, yes, Baltimore just played a tougher opponent in the Chargers and dismantled them. And it would be easy to say Baltimore is clear and away the best team in the AFC, but don't have such a short memory. Last year in the postseason, Baltimore was able to muster up just three points in Buffalo against the Bills, right? The Bills beat them 17-3, and I know it was a closer game than that. It was 10-3 up until that pick six late in the fourth quarter, but the Bills still held Lamar Jackson and company to just three points. So right now, the Ravens 5-1 sitting atop the AFC, but the Bills have one of the easiest remaining schedules. In fact, the only game I see on that schedule that 
even presents itself as a challenge is their game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers later in the year. The Buffalo Bills come out of their bye week. They've got Miami. They've got Jacksonville. They've got the Jets. The Buffalo Bills, as far as I'm concerned, are still in the driver's seat in the AFC. When we come back, Bills Mafia fan favorite and former Buffalo All-Pro linebacker Lorenzo Alexander joins the show. Do not go anywhere. You're tuned in to Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo. Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's Joe. We're back here on Sorallo Sports Talk and joining the show. He's a former all-pro linebacker, and he's a fan favorite among the Bills Mafia. It's Lorenzo Alexander. Lorenzo, thanks so much for joining the show. Hey, what's up, Joe? How you doing, brother? Doing great, man. It's great to have you on. I'll admit, I kind of thought the tone of this interview would be a little different going into last night's <laughs> Monday night game. I expected, a, I expected a Bills win going into that one. What's your biggest takeaway from that 34-31 loss last night? Yeah, I think we all did um, as far as the way they've been playing and uh, what you have to realize in this league that no game is ever guaranteed. Obviously, that's any given Sunday as the cliche goes. And uh, the Tennessee Titans is a very good football team. They're a physical football team. And if you allow them to be able to run the ball the way they did last night, they, they're very difficult to beat. Um, their defense has gotten better. We saw last night how deep they were as far as just the injuries they sustained and uh, Coach Rabel's done a great job of creating a winning culture over there. And so you can never take a game for granted. You know, with that said, I think the, the game came down to a couple of critical, uh, you know, penalties. And then when we look at the red zone opportunities, I think uh, last night the Bills were two for five and the uh, uh, Tennessee Titans were three for three. And that's the difference. Uh, when we analyze games, you know, everybody, you know, tends to like look at points and, and uh, time of possession and things of that nature. But like our top uh, phases, you want to even say analytically, because that's kind of a buzzword now is, uh, you know, third down, two minute red zone turnovers. Uh, turnovers was a push. Obviously, red zone wasn't uh, at, at an efficient level. And that's ultimately where you can kind of look to why, why did we lose those those phases right there? Yeah, Lorenzo, I couldn't agree with you anymore. You know, I thought what this came down to was Derrick Henry being able to just bully his way into the end zone and the Bills being able to move down the field all night, but settling for some field goals and opportunities where, you know, they needed touchdowns. And I want to ask you about Derrick Henry, because I use the word bully when I refer to him. (laughs) He's a guy you've played against, I believe, twice in the regular season, 2018, 2019. You beat the Titans in both of those games. You were actually the Bills' leading tackler in that 2019 matchup. Right. Explain what it's like when you see this six foot three, 250 pound freight train running right. at speeds upwards of 20 miles per hour coming straight at you. Well, luckily, he, he's never running that fast because I'm in the box. So I never get to him. <laughs> so Micah Hyde and, and uh, Levi Wallace or Davis and Jordan Poyer, any safety in the league. Hats off to you for even wanting to get in front of that uh, that guy running like that because you do have time to think, ooh, how do I want to do this? Do I want to get out the way? How do I want to tackle? So that's very hard. But um, I think I even went back. I think his rookie year was 2017. I think we found a play him in 2017 as well uh, with, with the Bills. And so I, I saw him a lot for whatever reason. We always tend to match up with Tennessee. And it is a, a game that you have to be mentally locked into uh, because he gets better because he wanes on people. He keeps hitting you, hitting you. And even when he's not being trying to be physical, he's 250, right? He's leaning forward. He may be bigger than 250. And so you have to be physically um, uh, consi- or mentally consistent in, hey, every play I'm going to bring the pain to him, right? Like you said, bully mentality. He doesn't really operate like that. He's just a big dude running hard, doing his job. But you have to physically bring it every single play. And you can't have letdowns. And everybody has to be willing to tackle, uh, including your corners. And you saw guys get out there just getting away to get him down. And at the end of the day, that's what it's about. But everybody has to be gap sound. Uh, last night in a couple of those runs, 
guys couldn't quite get off their blocks, were, weren't quite in their gaps. And if you give a guy like that, that has the speed to then break away, you're going to get the result that we saw last night. Yeah, three touchdowns. His second three-touchdown performance this season, just to put that into perspective, no other running back has one game with three rushing touchdowns so far on the year. He's got multiple is he in your MVP discussion? We're a third of the way through the season now. He's on pace for over 2,090 yards just on the ground. Has he entered the discussion with Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, and company? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely in the discussion. Obviously, he won't win it because he's a he's a running back. I'd be shocked. You know, he'd probably be offensive player of the year. Um, but, yeah, a guy that's able to do that, um, because if you take him off that team, I don't know how good they are, right? Yeah. Because he, 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 and you know, most of the time quarterbacks make everybody else around them better, right? That's why it's a quarterback driven league. He makes Tannehill better. Yeah. And therefore when Tannehill is better, AJ Brown is better. Julio is better. Their offense is better because things open up. Uh, he makes the game easier for his offensive alignment because he's able to run the ball and knock guys off. So you don't have to be as perfect as on, on your double teams and climbing to the second level. And because you're doing play action, defensive ends have to honor the run first before they get up the field. So he is a guy that really makes everybody better. Obviously a little bit untraditional when you think about how the league is now when it's such quarterback driven. And so I would say he, he should be MVP, you know, if he's able to keep up this pace, mm -hmm. uh, because it's just hard. He doesn't have the ball every time in his hands, but he still impacts it even when the ball isn't in his hands because of the, the, the threat of the play action. And even what we saw last night, some of those swing passes that are glorified runs, that those are things you have to worry about too. So um, I would definitely say he's, he's, he should be right up there, but because of his position, he probably won't win it. Yeah. It's definitely a lot harder for him than, you know, Alan Jackson, one guy I didn't mention who I know you talk about, you cover Kyler. frequently Kyler yeah. Murray. And I want to get into Kyler in just a moment, but the last thing regarding last night's game, I want to ask you about that play call going for it with Josh Allen fourth and inches inside a minute to go. You know, I saw nothing wrong with that. Right. I thought it was the right move, but I want your expert opinion on that yeah. play. What did you think? Uh, you know, I'm in the same uh, mindset. You know, uh, you're going for the win. You have an opportunity to win the game. You don't want to extend it to overtime, right? When you're fourth and inches and you have the playmakers on the field that they do, now you can maybe question, uh, maybe it could have been a different play call or, or a different way of getting to that. But at the end of the day, you have to execute, right? And everybody didn't execute on that play. And so you can't judge the play, um, you know, uh, based on the result. You have to judge it on, did everybody do their job to give this play an opportunity to win? And, and, and that didn't happen. And so when that, when that occurs, you get that result once again. That's, and they were just a little bit off last night, right? Able to drive the ball, but aren't able to finish. Get themselves in a position to win the game, but aren't quite able to finish. Uh, but this is a game they can learn from. Um, man, I had the game early in my mind, but there was another similar game might have been um, last year. I forgot who they lost to. Um, but it this is just a learning experience for them. This is something they can put in their brain. And when we get in this situation again, we can learn from. And this will help them later in the year as far as execution. Always paying attention to the details because they're going to win this division. If they don't, I would, I would <laughs> they would have to, everything would have to fall off, right? Yeah. So they're going to win this division. And so this is something that they can learn from, grow from. And then when they get in this situation again, come playoff time, um, really be able to rely on what this taught them by how they practice moving forward, their attention to detail moving forward, and then wanting to be consistent in those in those moments. Because a lot of times a guy, game comes down to like five or ten plays, and you, so you have to consistently be locked in because you don't know which ones they are. And so th that's what I expect from this team because I've been in there. I know what Sean McDermott talk, talks about, and uh, they'll they'll grow in this moment and not not fall back. Now, Lorenzo, as someone who, of course, you were an all-pro as a linebacker, but you started your career as a defensive tackle. So did a little piece of you appreciate Jeffrey Simmons, what he did on that play? I know it went against your team, but I mean, that's my guy, man. That's my guy, Doc, man. Yeah, he, um, and Simmons it, was just, it, was, it was more of a great play call, right? Mm -hmm. um, they stem late because they ran the play earlier, hoping that they could get somebody to jump off sides like they did early in the game, right? Uh, then that would have probably almost forced Sean's hand to kick the field goal. Um, but at that point, Dion didn't have the leverage or the angle to really get to where he wanted to get to. Maybe he could have maybe tried to cut him instead, but Simmons had a great get off. He really didn't have an opportunity at that point. And 
because the way it, it kind of happened all simultaneous, they shifted and Josh snapped the ball all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so Josh really didn't even have the foresight or the vision to maybe, hey, let me go one gap wider, right? Or, or you know, let me go the other way. So um, it, it's part of it, it happens. Um, you know, you can always say, well, maybe they knew what they did earlier on, on a third and short play. Why wouldn't they do something slightly different thinking that they may try to do something similar tactically defensively in the Titans. So it, it happens, you learn, you grow and you move forward, you know, but two losses, not going to hurt this team. Like I said, they're going to be in the playoffs, learn from it. It may hurt if they have an AFC championship, you know, home field advantage, you know, potentially, but um, uh, yeah, you just got to keep rocking, move forward. And, and hopefully uh, it doesn't hurt you as bad when we talk about home field advantage in the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's what you're looking at at this point. You know, I compared them in my opening segment of the show to the Ravens a few years ago, started two and two and finished 14 and two. The Bills could do right. the same thing. They could start four yeah. and two and finish 14 and three, maybe even 15 and two. Nothing would right. surprise me with this team. But you mentioned that this game is a learning experience. And of course, having played for Sean McDermott, I believe three years, you played for a lot of great head coaches, Bruce Arians, Rex Ryan, the legendary Joe Gibbs. What kind of separates McDermott. I'm not saying he's the best of the bunch necessarily, but, <laughs> right, but what's right, right. different about him? Um, I don't know. You know what? Let me talk about the similarities because it's hard to say. I think all of them have their own personality and they all use different examples, but there's so much continuity and greatness as far as having a clear vision, mm-hmm. being able to art- articulate that so your team understands it and then constantly um, being able to revisit. And so I think when I look, when I, when I, when I um, think about those commonalities, I think Sean, and maybe because I was older when I got to Sean, so I was more aware and not just so worried about making a team that I had the, the bandwidth to actually absorb what he was talking about all the time. I think he did the best job at establishing the culture and the foundation, the principles that he wanted our team to play with and then consistently hitting on those things throughout the season, keeping the team engaged because he would give it to you in a, in a slightly different way. Every time use videos, use individuals to speak, use moments that happen in the game to really, uh, uh, you know, provide practicality and reinforce what he was trying to preach. And it wasn't just the same message or the same saying all the time and where you can potentially lose guys or they check out. So I think he was actually the best at, at, at doing that thing that I think makes great coaches um, uh, really impactful, especially having consistency and continuity with the team. He did an excellent job. And I think a lot of that had to do with his teaching background, right? He taught for a lot of years. And so um, as you use the same thing as a, as a football coach, you're just a, a teacher of football. And so he was able to transition that, what he did in school, to how he applies it um, into um, uh, the meeting rooms. And so I thought he did that really well. And I think better better than anybody else, I actually saw him um, live out a lot of those principles as well. And again, I think because I was older, I saw him differently, a different relationship. I could really intimately get to know him and understand who he was versus those other guys. Joe Gibbs, I was 24 uh, just hoping and wishing I make the team, right? So I don't even, I'm not even trying to get to know Joe and Joe doesn't care who I am. So I'm this guy at the bottom of the roster. Um, the shame, similar things with Mike Shanahan. BA, I got a little bit older, but I was only there for like really a year and a half and he was an offensive guy. And then, but being with Sean, being a defensive guy, having kids a similar age, I really got to know who he was as a person out behind the coach. And so I really had an appreciation for how he conducted his business as a head football coach. Uh, that's an awesome, really unique connection that you had there with uh, with Sean McDermott. You know, you mentioned the the difference that you had from your time in Washington as opposed to Buffalo. Uh, when you look at your journey, I mean, going from an undrafted D tackle to spending two years on three different practice squads and then finally cracking the roster as the fifth D tackle on the depth chart, playing both sides of the ball in practice, just trying to make a roster somehow, whether it's as a guard, a D tackle, a tight end right. even. And then working your way to an all-pro linebacker. Uh, Lorenzo, what kept you going? I mean, there had to be times where you were just ready to give up and call it quits, I'm sure. Yeah, and and, and that period of time really happened earlier on um, where I was kind of jumping around and, and kind of looking back. I really didn't 
jump around too much compared to some other guys <laughs> who never get signed. And they, every week they are, you know, flying to Minnesota, flying to Chicago, flying down to Jacksonville. Um, and so I experienced that a little bit, um, especially after I got uh, cut by the Carolina Panthers because I, I was undrafted, signed there, was on a practice squad the whole year, didn't get cut into that second year. And then I was bouncing around. You know, I hadn't played that whole year prior. And that's the first time anybody in that situation um, has had to deal with, right? Anytime you're on practice squad, because before then you've been the man or you wouldn't even have an opportunity to be in the league. And so dealing with not playing, traveling around the country, I'm like, man, I don't know, man. I had went to, you know, the University of, of, of Berkeley, graduated from there. I'm like, man, I can go do something else, something that's more productive than flying around the country. This is just is not what I want to do. And so I almost gave up on myself earlier, but I had great people around me. My mom, my uncle um, really encouraged me to push through. Um, and fortunately, when I was working out back at home, Washington gave me a call and was able to get on their practice squad. And, and, and from that point, never looked back and, a little uh, just quick story on that and, and just how God works in my life that I wasn't even chosen in the workout with Washington. They had chosen another defense alignment that was there. Um, and during the workout, he actually pulled his hamstring and one of the other scouts saw that. And so he was like, hey, man, I think this dude pulled his hamstring. And then they ended up choosing me secondarily after after the injury occurred to the other player. And so that's just how you know, finite that line is as far as, you know, but having an opportunity to make something out of it or potentially transitioning into another career. Like my other guy that got released, he ended up becoming a sports attorney, a lawyer, marketing, does some other stuff now, very successful, but he could have been me and I could have been him very easily. And so it's just crazy how, um, you know, that line is just so, so um, thin as far as, you know, 15 years or, you know, 15 years doing something else. Yeah. 15 years. And by the way, a couple of pro bowls and all pro appearance too. Yeah. I'd say it all worked out. You know, maybe the most impressive accolade you have though is sitting there right behind you, right behind your right shoulder. Uh, I see the uh, man of the year. You were the representative yeah. for the bills, I believe on numerous uh, occasions. How much does that mean to you compared to, you know, the, the accolades and the awards for right. your on-field performance? Yeah, the, the football stuff is cool. Um, you know, obviously, I have, I've had a lot of people help me achieve that and become the player I am today. But then to be able to catapult that and use that platform of, of those awards and of being in the NFL to really impact the community that I came from, kids that grew up like me from in untraditional homes, maybe low income, uh, maybe don't have the type of resources uh, needed to really uh, become the person they envision themselves to be, to be able to stand in a gap like so many individuals did for me uh, was huge. And to be recognized by my teammates, to see me actually living that out um, on a daily basis um, is, is probably the coolest honor because that's legacy, right? That's impact. You're changing people's lives beyond just yours. And that's what we ultimately all been called to do. You know, we all do it different ways, but at the core of it, it's about people and helping everybody get to where they want to be. And so it's really been a pleasure. And I've had countless teammates help me, mentor me. And I think about guys like London Fletcher who I watched and idolized and became a brother to me and how he did the same thing. And think about James Thrash. I think about Sean Taylor. It's just a lot of guys that were in my life that were great football players, but better people. Mm -hmm. And so I've just tried to follow in that suit in a lot of ways and, and, and pay it forward by what they did for me. And I'll give you credit. You're still looking out for London Fletcher. I mean, I think it was you who told him never put that Trevor Lawrence wig on again. <laughs> that was just not a good look. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. Yeah, Fletch is uh, trying to live the glory days when he used to have some hair. So I just, <laughs> man, hey, just remember who you are, where you at. But that's that's the cool thing about brotherhood um, that we can always clown on each other and mess around. But uh, Fletch, yeah, he's one of the best to ever do. And hopefully he gets in the Hall of Fame one of these days because he's definitely deserving of that as well. I agree with you. He's definitely due. Lorenzo, before I let you go, I, I want to end on something that you recently posted, not just the London Fletcher post, but a different Instagram post where you were giving back. You were working out with a young man. It looked like it was either your garage or his garage doing some training yep. with him. But what stood out to me was the collection of jerseys on the wall behind you. I'm assuming those are from post-game jersey swaps. No, you no, know what? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little old school. I'm not even into post-game jersey swaps. Um, those uh, actually came from guys that I knew um, because getting a jersey of a player is, is one thing, right? Because they're a great player. 
But I remember um, Daryl Green and, and being in Washington for all those years, I got to know him well and hear him speak on numerous occasions. And one of the things he said was, I don't, I never allow my son to put a jersey up on a wall and not be able to tell me something about that person that's on the wall outside of them being a great football player. And so actually all those jerseys on the wall are from guys that I have played with, know well, whether it's through NFL PA, community service, uh, living life. Like for example, Steve Smith, played with him my rookie year, know him really well. Our wives actually grew up together, went to college together. Um, and getting to see him as a man and what he's done, what he's grown, gone through and overcome, that's why Steve Smith is on my wall. Not because he's probably one of the greatest receivers to ever play the game, but because of what he represents um, off the field, the man that he is. And so those are like, um, you know, just great displays where people like that young man who I was training coming to my, hey, man, you got, hey, you got Larry Fitzgerald, man, you got Kyle Williams, man, you got Thomas Davis. Uh, and then there's some guys that you may not even know, but when they, when they ask about it, I can talk about the life of that person, who they were, how they impacted the community, just what they did on the field is just a gateway to show them who, who they are and what they can do. And so that's where it came from me actually reaching out. Hey man, hey Derek Carr, hey, can I get your Jersey, man? I really respect you. Love you play with you. I want to, I want to put you on my wall. And so that's what it's more about than them being a great, great player. That, that's amazing. That's better than any post-game jersey swap story I was hoping to get out of you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, one thing that those four guys, well, five after mentioning Carr that you mentioned, Steve Smith, Derek Carr, Fitz, Thomas Davis, Kyle Williams, all tremendous football players, all better people. Right. So I, I, I love the message. I love what you're building with that wall. Lorenzo, thank you so much for the time, man. I, I could talk to you for hours about football, about stuff off the field, man. It's been a blast. Thanks so much for joining the show. Anytime, Joe, man. We have to do this again. Absolutely. Stick around for my final word right here on Serralo Sports Talk. Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Serralo Sports Talk. It is time for my final word here on Serralo Sports Talk. What an incredible spot right there by Lorenzo Alexander. Having him on first time I've had him on the show in four years. And man, was that great to catch up, talk about the Buffalo Bills. Look, I'm not worried. I said it at the end of my monologue. I'm not worried about the Buffalo Bills, right? Last night, you hate to lose that game, especially in terms of chasing the one seed in the AFC. But looking at the rest of their schedule, I mean, there is a chance this team can realistically finish 10 and 1. I'm not worried about the Buffalo Bills. We've seen crazier things, right? We saw the Baltimore Ravens a few years back start 2 and 2 and finish 14 and 2. So, if the Buffalo Bills were to start the year 4 and 2 like they are in this case and finish it 14 and 3, yeah, would not shock me one bit. But I want to use my final word to touch on a couple other sports that are going on in very different capacities. One in full swing of the postseason and the other watching its season tip off to night first off what a night for los angeles i mean we can dive right in we've got the dodgers hosting game three of the nlcs walker bueller their ace arguably out there tonight and then on the other hand you've got the la lakers who are tipping off their season at home against the golden state warriors who are primed to also be fantastic this season you've got the lakers finally we're getting to see this team lebron james anthony davis russ Westbrook is this the best big three of LeBron James's career I mean I can't wait to see what these three do together with the Lakers and hey you know if you're a Dodgers fan and a Lakers fan think of it this way right if the Dodgers lose tonight and fall to a 3-0 deficit against the Atlanta Braves of course that's only been overcome once in the history of baseball when the Red Sox did it in 04 to the Yankees if the Dodgers effectively see their season come to an end tonight well, there's a new beginning awaiting because the Lakers watch their season tip off about an hour after the conclusion of that Dodgers-Braves game. I mean, I think, first off, there's no way the Dodgers lose this game. We saw it last year in the NLCS. The Braves went up 2-0 against the Dodgers. The Braves went up 3-1 against the Dodgers. 
the Dodgers ended up winning the World Series, right? So Walker Bueller on the bump. I know Charlie Morton has been historically a fantastic postseason pitcher. I know Morton's got all sorts of postseason accolades and records under his name. He is not better than Walker Bueller. Right here, tonight, 2021, I would rather have Walker Bueller going in game three with my back against the wall than Charlie Morton. So I think that the Dodgers are going to be just fine. One thing that concerns me a bit, when you look at the big bats of LA, it was cold in Atlanta. You saw the Dodgers hit a few fly balls to the warning track in that series that normally would be out in hot, humid Atlanta. Well, it's going to be kind of chilly in LA. Now, luckily, this game is uh, beginning at 2 p.m. LA time. So it's going to be a little warmer, going to be 70 degrees, ball should be flying out because you know, at nighttime, LA is a totally different ballpark, right? Chavez Ravine, Dodger Stadium, daytime, hitters park, nighttime, pitchers park. So hopefully that this game is starting at 2 p.m. LA time, that helps Bueller and the Dodgers lineup more than anything. I think the Dodgers are getting right back in this series. Do I think they're going to win this series? I don't know. Truthfully, I'm conflicted. I think they're they're winning tonight, but part of me as a Mets fan hates the Braves, wants to see the Dodgers come back and knock the Braves out, right? Part of me as a Mets fan who hates the Los Angeles Dodgers, just like most of America right now, wants to see whoever the AL representative is win the World Series. And if you think about it, there's probably a better chance of that happening against the Braves then against the Dodgers, who would go from wildcard road warrior throughout the entire National League portion of the playoffs to home field advantage in the World Series because, yeah, they won 106 freaking games in the regular season. So I'm really interested to see how this unfolds. My rooting interests are totally conflicted. I'm probably going to have to take one for the team and root for the Braves to get to the World Series just so I can root for either Boston or Houston to beat them. And that brings me to the American League Championship Series. What the hell is going on in Boston with those bats? I mean, this is a Red Sox team that, by all logic, anyone who knows baseball, you look at the postseason and you win in the playoffs with pitching. The Red Sox don't have pitching, but, I mean, hey, neither do the Houston Astros, right? Uh, By that logic, we'd be watching Tampa Bay and the White Sox right now, and both those teams got canned in the divisional series round. This is an absolutely incredible offensive outburst that we've been seeing from Boston. Three grand slams in three games. Forget three games. It's the first time in postseason history that one team has hit three grand slams in a series. Red Sox hit two in game two, one last night in game three. Uh, I mean, J.D. Martinez, Kiki Hernandez, who has done incredible things with the Dodgers in the playoffs, had an incredible postseason run last year with LA. Kiki now doing it with Boston, picking up where he left off in terms of October baseball. The Red Sox look like an unstoppable juggernaut. And you know, you had Alex Cora get suspended, miss the 2020 shortened season because of his role in the Houston Astros cheating scandal as their bench coach. But is Alex Cora the best manager in baseball? I mean, everyone talked about A.J. Hinch when he was running the show in Houston with that mini dynasty they created. And I say mini dynasty because it only resulted in one ring. You know, they had a ton of ALCS appearances. They had two World Series appearances, but you can't call it a dynasty with just one ring. Nonetheless, everyone was saying A.J. Hinch was the best manager in baseball. Was it really Alex Cora the whole time when he was the bench coach in Houston and got a ring? Left for Boston, won what, 108 games in 2018 and got a ring? This year, he's just four wins away from getting another ring. I mean, Alex Cora, the job he's doing in Boston with, especially in terms of the pitching department, limited tools, has been absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely fantastic. And just like I'll use the same term I use with the Buffalo Bills, absolutely fun. I mean, the Boston Red Sox are a fun, explosive team. If you want to up engagement, among today's youth in Major League Baseball, have them watch the Boston Red Sox. Because even though maybe a baseball purist, someone like myself who played the pitcher position, maybe I would love to see a 2-1, to 3-2 to two pitchers duel in a postseason game. But the bats are flying in Boston, and the casual baseball fan has got to be loving the 9, 10, 11 run outbursts that they're seeing 
from the Red Sox lineup against the Houston team that was the heavy favorite to go to the World Series. This has just been a wild, fun postseason. Boston-Atlanta. I mean, if that's the World Series we get, you get a wild card team in the Red Sox and the team from the National League who had the fewest wins. Only National League playoff team that didn't crack 90 wins. But that's baseball for you. That's why you gotta love it. And if you look at the NBA, which like I said, tonight is tipping off. You've got the Brooklyn Nets and the reigning champs, the Milwaukee Bucks, the LA Lakers, and the Golden State Warriors. I mean, to me, the big storyline tonight, it's not the reigning champs. It's not the fact that the unvaccinated point guard of the Brooklyn Nets, Kyrie Irving, is nowhere to be found except for playing pickup football with high school kids in New York City parks. Uh, someone explain what that's all about. It's not how dangerous the Golden State Warriors can be with a healthy Klay Thompson. No, the big story tonight, I touched on it minutes ago, it's LeBron James chasing his fifth ring, this time accompanied by not only Anthony Davis, but Russell Westbrook. And if you want to add on to that, Carmelo Anthony, Dwight Howard. I mean, it's the, the LA Lakers are the 2012 NBA All-Stars. And I absolutely love it. I mean, these guys, I don't think that these guys' best years are necessarily behind them. Dwight Howard and Carmelo Anthony, absolutely. LeBron James? No, I, I refuse to believe that LeBron James is slowing down. Took a small step back last year, but he had just played longer than anyone else in the NBA, right? Having won a title. He was playing. Everyone else was on the golf course. And it was the shortest offseason in NBA history following the COVID bubble. So I don't really take last year into the account when I look at LeBron James slowing down. He played the fewest minutes of his career last year. I think necessarily so. This year, we're back to normalcy. Had a normal offseason. And I think the LA Lakers. If they are not your favorites to cut down the nets in late June as the NBA champs, you're nuts. The Lakers are better than Milwaukee. They're better than Brooklyn, Kyrie or not. And tonight, we're going to see that they're better than Golden State. They're the best team in the West. They're the best team in the league. LeBron James is going to get his fifth ring this season. And just like that, this episode of Serralo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. Special thanks to Lorenzo Alexander, the one-man gang. It was great catching up with him. Don't lose faith in your Buffalo Bills. And enjoy the rest of the MLB postseason. I'll see you guys next week.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.